0: Wilco has been in business for more than 90 years, but now the discount retailer that caters to the cost-conscious has been squeezed into administration itself, leaving 12,500 workers on the brink. A throw, or plants, or cat food, anything. It's just a fabulous shop. All these people like see the same people in here. What are they going to do? What what jobs are they going to find now? So it's just, it is, it's going to be tough for them. It's
1: really convenient for me and really handy uh, and the fact you can take your dog in.
0: When a business fails, it has consequences for the staff, customers, investors and the wider community. Wilco, the discount retailer, is the latest example of that. More than 12,000 jobs and 400 shops were put at risk by the company entering administration. But why do businesses fail? And what's it like being the boss of
1: one that does?
0: I'm Graham Ruddick, and you're listening to Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past and asks Did they really happen the way we think they did? And what can we learn from them today? In this episode, we speak to retail veteran Ian Shepard, who was chief executive of video game retailer GAME when it went into administration in 2012. He now writes the Moving Tribes newsletter on Substack about business strategy, where he has analysed why a retailer gets into trouble and what a business should do when in that situation on the back of the demise of Wilco. Before joining GAME, Ian Shepard worked for Sky and Vodafone where he ran the telecoms company's High Street Shops in the UK. After game, he was the chief operating officer for Odeon, the cinema chain, and he's now
1: chairman of Benson's for Beds. I think the starting point is that the experience of the end of a business or a very painful transition, as is often the case for a business when it goes through something like administration, is a horrible one. And it's not just a horrible one for people sat around the board table. It's a horrible one for colleagues in every part of the business, out in stores and in the operations of the business as well. And so the reason I, I I chose to write about Wilco in the way that I did was that in some senses that wasn't didn't feel like there was a lot of point writing an article saying what went wrong at Wilco because people inside that business will know the answer to that much better than than I could. But I did want to, to a certain extent, to express some empathy with what I know people there have been going through. And the same will be true for, for other retail businesses that either are in trouble now or get into trouble over the next year or two as well. And I opened that piece by saying by using Hemingway quote, which is, you know, bankruptcy happens kind of gradually and then suddenly. And it it, it absolutely feels like that. So you 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 kind of You know, for whatever the reason that puts your business under pressure, and in the case of game, it was a combination of, you know, a very cyclical market going through a very long downturn. Essentially, it took a year or two longer for Microsoft and Sony to bring out the next generation of consoles than everyone had expected. So we had this kind of real long, lull period, a combination of that and the fact that the business just had too much cost. Uh, It had too many stores. It had international operations, some of which were, not really making any money, and so it wasn't. It wasn't in a position to weather a storm for as long as the storm turned out to last. But the way that feels is that you, you have quite a long period of well, we didn't. You know, we've, we we gained market share, we've traded well, but we didn't quite meet expectations because the market was just awful. And then another quarter's update happens, and it's the same sort of story. And then you know, so it's it's kind of constantly bad news. But but it feels like you know we have a plan, we have a strategy, we're growing these new revenue streams, we're doing this stuff. So it kind of feels like there is light at the end of the tunnel somewhere. And then suddenly it begins to kind of crumble. You know, a business, I, I use the phrase, well, I have to be careful about using this phrase, but I used the phrase once that business is a confidence trick. But what I mean by that is it all works fine as long as everybody's confident in its future. The suppliers, the, the lenders, the, 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 you know, everybody involved in the infrastructure of the business It's one of those things that if you all think it's going to be fine, then it probably will be. But the moment somebody loses confidence in the business and either a supplier stops supplying or a lender starts to get obstreperous about whether or not their loan's going to get repaid, then things unravel very quickly and, and you end up in this kind of month or two of you know the, the leadership team locked in meetings, trying to re-engineer things or trying to persuade people to have confidence again and at the same time everybody else in the business kind of looking on knowing that something's going wrong not really knowing necessarily that much about what it is um and both being really worried for their for their jobs and for the and for the, and for their futures so that i think what i take from the experience was first of all that sort of gradual and then sudden peace you know the other thing that i talk to and i talk a lot now to people either whose businesses are getting into trouble or whose businesses have gone under is sort of you end up to a certain extent, it's a small club. So, so so you end up, at some some point, somebody will introduce me to someone and say, you know, they've had a really tough time. Can you just buy them a beer and have a conversation and kind of talk about it? And and, and one of the things that, that comes up from those conversations more frequently than anything else is, is the importance in that moment of kind of crisis for a business of first of all, being true to the brand and the sort of strategy that the business is and has And secondly, being true to the values that you would like to aspire to. So that's a painful period at the end of a business. Everyone in it, everywhere from, you know, kind of colleagues right out in the the business, in stores, in in distant countries and other operations, right the way through to the leadership team and the board of directors, everyone is tested. You know, that process of being tested, I think kind of the challenge that it puts on you is, you know, how are you going to behave? um so you know as as the leader of a business in trouble you know you could abandon ship you can run for cover you can try and find someone else to blame for what's going on or you can dig in and try and fix the problem so you're going to be you're going to be personally examined in terms of your conduct and so i think the the you know the sort of phrase i would conjure with is kind of there's something about you know what does our strategy say we should do and what do our values say about how we should do it um and trying to trying to stay clear to that so One of the things I mentioned in the post I wrote last week, for example, was the importance of communication. It's very easy for communication experts and advisors to say to the board of a business that's in trouble, look, just don't say anything. Don't say anything to the press. Don't turn up at any events. Don't say anything to your, don't send out any kind of 10,000 personal employee emails to your colleagues because it'll all end up in the papers and that will just make the situation worse. So actually you should be in a bunker and you should hunker down and it's completely wrong. Because it's morally wrong, because you're leaving everybody out in the cold, you know, in, in, in the business, in your supply chain, in your network. But it's also strategically wrong, because if people don't know what what's going on, they can't help. Uh, and so actually, my advice runs the other way, which is, you know, by and large, most of us will have you know, value statements on the walls of our boardroom saying things like open and honest and trustworthy and all the rest of it. And actually, when you're in trouble, that you have to really lean into that. So by the end of the situation, again, I was writing an all-employee email every morning saying some version of, you know, this is what you read in the papers yesterday. This bit of it's true. This bit of it's speculation. Here's what we're doing. And even now, I don't think I did that enough. But still, I think it was important to try and kind of keep everybody together. And I was, you know, I will forever be amazed at the amount of kind of support, commitment, energy that that, that we got from thousands of colleagues in nine countries around the world as we were going through that process. And, and I think that that, generally speaking, when I speak to people who've been through the, the process, they say the same thing, which is that actually that the more, the more you kind of the business puts its arms around each other, the people in the business, put their arms around each other, the stronger you are.
0: How different does your job become in that instance compared to what it was? Because you have presumably new different people within the business, lawyers, consultants, potentially administrators as well, who know far less about the business most likely than you do. And then secondly, you've got this threat of unlawful trading hanging over you as well. And therefore you having to consider things and decisions completely differently to what you did previously. Yes,
1: I think that's true, I, I, and one of the you know one of the reasons why I think sometimes when businesses start to get into the suddenly bit rather than the gradually bit of being in trouble and 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 different stakeholders start to be really concerned about things, one of the reasons that it, it very quickly can become a self fulfilling prophecy is because actually it becomes a hugely overwhelming process. You know, I, I recall my my CFO and I at games spending literally 12 hours in a lawyer's room somewhere locked in with kind of 20 bankers, which is 12 hours that you haven't spent attempting to sell more video games or to, you know, kind of source some funding or to do some of the other things that one might be doing if you were actually running the business. And so in, in a sense, when you get into that very challenging period, it becomes, you know, there's a huge distraction there lots of new stakeholders all of whom need time all of whom need input you know can you send me another slide deck about x y or z and then as you say that there, there is there's a lot to be careful about as well so wrongful trading you know is just one of the kind of legal pitfalls that directors of a business that's in trouble need to be careful about uh and of course no, nobody wants first of all nobody wants to be found liable for anything like that but also in practice you just you know you want to do you want to do it right you want to do what's right for the business and so yeah, you end up taking a lot of legal advice. You end up sitting in a lot of kind of pro forma board meetings going, you know, do we agree that we're still a going concern and therefore can carry on trading for the rest of today? You know, you end up spending a lot of your finance team will end up spending a lot of time managing cash. So, you know, weird questions for a retailer, like how much is actually in our tills right now, um, become questions that you need to know the answer to, that you may not have needed to know the answer to before. Um, you make different trading decisions when you're in difficulty because cash is what matters now not profit so you know you might start taking some old stock and selling it for pennies and the pound just to bring in some cash you might think about the nature of the promotional strategy and the offers that you're putting out in the marketplace you know all all sorts of things are different and of course by and large most management teams when their business gets into trouble are not familiar with that so you're also doing a lot of things for the first time, uh, and I think that can be uh, can be really testing. Which is why, again, I think I come back to the point that you know you've got to turn back to your brand. You know, what kind of business are you? Who are you? What are you about? And also to your values. How are we supposed to conduct ourselves now? That that's got to be your kind of north star.
0: It's fascinating that you use that Hemingway quote, uh, and listening to you now talk about the little details, because as when a business gets into administration, there's a temptation, particularly in the media, to sort of draw grand conclusions about the industry trends that have led to this position. But actually listening to what you're saying, while that can be the reason why the retailer is finding life difficult, ultimately it's tiny little things that are then the difference between whether it goes on or whether it heads into administration. Is that is that fair? Is it is it ultimately about little decisions by suppliers or five percent of customers going here, ten percent going there?
1: Yeah, look, I think there's a couple of different things in that in that question that are that are really on point. You don't end up in angry meetings with your bankers unless your business is genuinely in sort of some sort of difficulty, which means that either your market's gone very much the wrong way for the shape of your business, or you've made some strategic mistakes. And if you look at businesses that fail, whether it's the one, you know, ones that I've been game the example we have been talking about here, or will, there's always some combination of both of those things going on. So, so, so there's either a difficult market or there's some strategic missteps or there's some combination of all of that. But the question is when. When do you cross the line where that, if you like, from being kind of well, that's awkward and we need to fix it. When do you cross the line into no? We're now in intensive care, and and actually there is a real danger that this just kind of that the intense that process becomes, as I said earlier, a self fulfilling prophecy and and runs away from you, and and that can be a relatively small thing. A credit insurer removing cover uh a single supplier thinking well actually you know we'd rather you paid us in advance now you know one of your lenders starting to get a bit twitchy so so it can be hence my phrase you know business is a confidence trick that you know it, it, it takes a so one person runs for the exit and suddenly everybody in the theater stands up and thinks maybe we should be running for the exit too and it can become a really kind of difficult a really difficult thing to um to manage i mean in terms of the i suppose the industry you know what what are the things that might have led you to be in that situation in the first place if you put to one side you know you got your strategy wrong which is which is always possible you know the industry piece is is you know yes i think you, you, when you touched on you know a small percentage of your customers choosing to do something different i think that's a really important point because i see a lot of kind of external analysis of of what happens in retail and hospitality that sort of Seems to almost imply that you know, well, people are still buying that product, right? So I don't understand why you've gone into administration. And I think what 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 people often fail to understand is is this concept of operational gearing. I've written a bit about it in in Moving Tribes of the over the period that when quite a lot of your cost is fixed, you know, you're paying rent on the stores, you're you've got utility bills to keep the lights on, then it doesn't take 100% of your customers to leave you before you end up in big trouble. It takes a much smaller percentage to leave you because basically you just have to get down to a point where you can't cover those fixed costs anymore. And so it might well be that you know 10% here, 15% there, drifting either to a competitor or stopping using that product altogether or you know choosing to buy from online suppliers rather than from high street retailers or whatever the, in your particular industry, whatever that trend happens to be. A relatively small shift can have a huge, huge impact on, on the profitability of the business.
0: Game Group went into administration in 2012. At the time, it was a listed company, meaning its problems happened in the full spotlight of public markets, and the company got plenty of media attention. The brand was actually rescued and still exists today, It's owned by Mike Ashley's Frasers Group, but has far fewer shops than it used to. Before the administration, Game had about 700 shops. Today, it's less than 250. Ian Shepherd joined Game in 2010, so looking back, does he think the company could have avoided administration, and
1: what would he have done differently? The game group PLC administration that we're talking about, again, still exists, but but the, the game group PLC administration that we're talking about was 11 years ago. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of water under the bridge since then. And I, I, I've i not really spent a great deal of time trying to kind of relitigate, you know, what happened in that period of time. Self-evidently, if, if, if the next generation of games consoles that we were waiting for at that point in time had come out in a year earlier, then that would have made an enormous difference. I think if, I mean, we were a PLC in a world really before some of the solvent restructuring techniques that people use now existed. So for example, you know, retailers now, you know, quite often lean on what's called a CVA to effectively renegotiate terms with their landlords and shed some stores. Again, we had far too many stores, but that wasn't really a tool that we had available to us. So we were shrinking the estate one by one as leases came to an end rather than losing 200 or 300 out of our 700 store which is probably what you would do now in the circumstances so you know the world is very different now than it was then but in the end you know you don't get a time machine on these things and so I, I haven't spent a great deal of time kind of trying to think that logic through
0: you've touched on this a little bit in your pieces but how difficult is that personally for you as a ceo that moment but also the
1: team more broadly well, I think most importantly, it's the impact on the team more broadly. So you can play a tiny violin for yourself as the CEO of a business that's been through a difficult period like that. But in the end, you were paid to take that risk, and by and large, you were paid pretty well to take that risk. So, it—I it, it, mean—it comes at a cost. And as I said before, I've spent quite a lot of time now over the years with executives—not not just CEOs, but board directors generally—who've been through that kind of issue and and sort of giving them an opportunity to vent and, you know, kind of will-share sort of stories and experiences. And I think that's been, for some people, a helpful thing to go through. So there's no question it's a difficult time, but, but it's a much more difficult time if you are a store manager in a retail business, you've worked there for 15, 16, 17 years, and you're given statutory redundancy by the administrator and your store is closed underneath you, what feels like a matter of days. We shouldn't gloss over that... Any retail or, frankly, I mean any business administration, but certainly in retail and hospitality, which are such huge employers in this country, any restructuring like that is immensely painful. And I think that I've run into occasionally sort of this sort of glib economist argument, which is that business failure is good because businesses fail and new businesses will spring up to replace them and, and all the rest of it. And of course, at some level, that's true. Uh, but it's also a pretty soulless way of looking at the world. And I think that, you know, the, the experience of having been through it myself means that, you know, when I look at things like the Wilco story that's happening at the moment, I'm just kind of you know what i really grieve for is the impact on on i mean that's 12,000 people i think that uh, i'm going to offer a hostage to fortune i think quite a lot of the wilco business will continue to exist once some sort of transaction has happened with the administrator but no, there's no question that for many people in that business it's going to be the end of their tenure and, and and that's just that's just awful
0: what what do you know now that you wish you'd known then i think that
1: a, a crude way that i would summarize that is that a lot of business executives and particularly a lot of kind of commercial people who've grown up in marketing or sales or, you know, the commercial end of the business or indeed the operational part of the business in sort of supply chain and elsewhere, you, you can get quite senior in businesses without really having to think that much about cash. So so you tell, and, and the crude way I always put that is, that is that, you know, as executives, and I would have characterized myself like this on my way into game, you're a creature of the PL. You know, you're thinking about, how much have we sold and what margin did we sell it at and you're not a creature of the balance sheet and the balance sheet is in the end is the thing that will kind of you know make or break you which is you know how much cash do we have who do we own money to can we repay that debt you know how's all that flowing through in the in in, in the business and so before I went to one game my job at uh, Vodafone was running a £3 billion P&L but if I fell short on my targets I got shouted at by the finance department we were in no way going to go bankrupt because that £3 billion P&L was a tiny tiny part of the £70 billion public company and so the, that, the balance sheet thing just wasn't a factor that, that we thought about a lot when you're in a, a standalone business as opposed to a subsidiary so you're in a business like Game or a business like Odeon or a business like Wilco, you know cash matters a lot uh, and so the disciplines of thinking about you know, what are the risks? What are the opportunities? What, what strategy are we following? It's a different discipline. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, I certainly approach business with a different set of skills now than I did then.
0: The problems facing Wilco have again demonstrated how tough it is for high street retailers. Not only is there a cost of living crisis in the UK, which has squeezed consumer spending, but more and more spending is also going online a trend which has transformed the retail industry. Even brands like John Lewis have struggled. In fact, department stores across the UK have closed and high streets have been left with empty shops that they're struggling to fill. So what does a retailer need to do today to not just survive, but thrive?
1: I think the the key thing for... Any retailer now is if you're a retail business, when I ask you, why should I buy that product from you? You need a really good answer. Now that sounds banal, because surely that's always been true. But actually, if you think about the you know hundreds of years of retail history, for a long part of that time, the role of a retailer has essentially been distributive. In other words, you know, I open a shop in your town selling. You know the example I always end up using is white goods. So I'm selling fridges and freezers in your town. There's probably only one or two other retailers in your town selling fridges and freezers. You come along, you look at the fridge, you know, you, you try and figure out the one that's going to fit into your kitchen. You write a few things down on a piece of paper, but in the end, you're going to buy one of those fridges either from me or from somebody just further up the street. Because what else are you going to do? That that's that's kind of how it worked. Weirdly enough, I think a lot of the disciplines that have grown up in retail over the very long period of time have been about range management, they've been about distribution, they've been about getting products in the right place, they've been about the store estate, you know, the right stores in the right place, dressed in the right way to attract you in in order to buy those products. The problem is now I have the specification of every fridge ever made and the price points for those fridges from every retailer in the world available to me in my pocket. Uh, and so that that just can't help but change what it means to be a retailer. And it means that essentially, rather than your economic value add being essentially about being there, about distribution, It has to be about something else. And I think that the the good news is, I've I've talked a lot to different retail businesses about this. The good news is there are loads of good answers to the question, why should I buy from you? You know, it might be your expertise and your knowledge, you know, the bike shop that that can talk you through the different technologies and sets the bike up for you and tells you what other bits and bobs you need with it. You know, that's a great service that people want to experience. It might be... You know, about exclusive products, you know, that you, you, you make your own, for example, products or that you source things that nobody else has got or limited editions of things or, you know, particular colorways or particular fabrics. It might be about design. It might be about customer experience, but there has to be a reason why I want to choose to buy from you. And so I think that that is weirdly enough for what sounds like such an obvious consumer marketing question the thing I spend most time with most retailers really exploring because typically what will happen is especially I mean I most of my time I spend with specialist retailers I'm not really a kind of supermarket expert but with specialist retailers when I say that why should I buy from you their answer is almost always well it's our expertise in the depth of our product range and you go well is it um, you know, let's go and stand in your store and look and see you know, how much information on these products is there. How well trained are your colleagues in store about the stuff that's out there? You know, and actually, you know, I I, I mean, here's a game example, because game would have been the would have said, well, we sell games, video games because we're gamers. And when I first joined that business, I, 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 I had to say to them, as a gamer, I stand in the store, I look at the game on the shelf and then I find myself Googling it to find out whether it's any good or not you know, you're the specialist, you're the expert, and yet I'm having to go on to, you know, Amazon or, you know, Google or, or whatever in order to find out whether this game's any good or not. So how does that work? So, so I think that, you know, oftentimes people think they know the answer of, you know, why why somebody should buy from them, but the, the task of making it true, you know, really standing out in that way, uh, I think is a really, really demanding one. And it's one of the reasons why the importance of kind of the engagement and the attitude and the knowledge of your colleagues around the business, not just in store, but in every part of the business, that's, that's a hugely, hugely important differentiator. So by and large, you know, if you walk into a store, it's really obvious why you would buy from them. They've got really interesting, unusual product or their expertise is really obvious and their colleagues are engaged, you know, smile at you when you walk into the store, say hello. That's probably a retailer that's doing pretty well. And, you know, on the other hand, if you walk into a retailer that is selling products, you could very easily buy online in a relatively undifferentiated way. And, you know, where their colleagues are not particularly happy to be there and not particularly welcoming, that's probably a retailer that's going to get into some sort of difficulty.
0: Who do you admire among retailers at the moment?
1: I think in a couple of different ways. I admire retailers who are doing the kind of omni-channel kind of, Customer engagement piece really, really well, and they are character. The people who've got there earliest, I think, are characteristically the retailers that were once catalog sales businesses. So next, there's a reason why Next isn't a successful retailer on the high street is because they've got that whole multi-channel piece deeply in their DNA because they came from being a being a catalog business. So it's it, it, it's that question of how many customers do you have, how much do they spend every month, and how long will they stay, is a kind of makes more sense, I think, intuitively to the to that team than it does maybe to other retailers. So I admire that. But 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 what I always end up going back to are are retailers who have a back to this why should I buy from you? Have a deeply connected, kind of intimate relationship with their customers. So, you know, Lush, Games Workshop or, you know, Warhammer as it is now, you know, hotel chocolate, you know, the, these are businesses, it's really obvious what they're for, it's really obvious why you should buy from them. It's really obvious that the people who work in those stores love the product and love the customer. They have passionate tribes of customers. The reason I call my blog Moving Tribes. They have real passionate tribes of customers that, you know, absolutely are on their team. And I think that's incredible when you find it. And we're all, any of us in retail, that's, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to be that.
0: You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to read bonus content from this episode and get business news and analysis throughout the week, then you can sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. You will get newsletters straight into your inbox and get alerts when new episodes of Business Studies go live. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.